Who could have imagined? Who could have hoped there'd be another gold rush? Unthinkable that there was an overlooked last frontier where a fortune could be made overnight simply by pounding a claim stake in the ground. Yet suddenly, like a comet, it was upon them, and tens of thousands found themselves ripe for adventure. The Wild West was going to have one great last act after all. The entire continent in a matter of hours came down with Klondike fever, or Klondicitis, as it was soon dubbed. Within a day, people were heading west from small towns and big cities all across the United States and Canada. Most were coming by railroad. Some were even setting out on bicycles. At first, there was a great deal of confusion about the exact location of the Klondike goldfields. A newspaper in Memphis, Tennessee, reported that the Klondike was not far north of Chicago. But the telegraph wires were soon humming the true destination. Dawson City, a boomtown of 3,000 souls that lay 1,400 miles up the Yukon, the great river of the north. The name Klondike came from the small, clear-running Klondike River, which joined the Yukon at Dawson City. To the surprise of millions, the gold fields were not in Alaska at all, but in Canada. Everywhere, families were deciding who would be the ones to go, mostly their young men, and were making it possible by pooling their resources. Great aunts and great uncles who'd hoarded gold pieces under the floorboards during the hard years were suddenly offering their life savings without hesitation. Why not? when the gold in the creek beds was thick as cheese in a sandwich, as described by the Klondike-celebrated American discoverer George Washington Carmack. Some people were even grub-staking strangers who'd placed ads in the classifieds. Only two days after the arrival of the much-heralded gold ship, the first steamer left Seattle filled with stampeders headed for Skagway, Alaska, a settlement of only two buildings at the edge of an immense wilderness few could imagine. Once in Skagway, the Klondikers would begin carrying all their supplies over the mountains to the gold fields. The little steamer, named the Alki, set sail from Seattle crammed with 900 sheep, 65 cattle, 30 horses, 350 tons of supplies, and 110 passengers the first droplets of the human tidal wave that was to come. Jason Hawthorne was desperate to get in on it. After four days of riding the rails, he'd reached Minot, North Dakota, where he found himself in extremely cramped quarters. Jason was sharing a boxcar with hundreds of bags of flour headed for the Klondike trade in Seattle, and two men who looked like blown-in-the-glass hobos. The younger man, who sported a Buffalo Bill goatee, was swilling whiskey from the bottle and reciting endlessly the popular jingle about a purple cow. The old one, a grizzled fellow who was on his way to the Klondike but looked as if he'd just come back, was hacking at his overgrown beard with a long, sharp knife and tossing the severed clumps of gray out the open door of the boxcar. Jason had a Minnesota newspaper to read, which took his mind off the drunk and the purple cow and his own growling stomach. He hadn't eaten since St. Paul. The paper was full of news from Seattle, beehive central for the staging of the rush. Seattle's mayor, Jason read, had been in San Francisco when the gold ship had arrived with its millionaire prospectors. 
the mayor immediately wired home his resignation and started buying and chartering steamships and selling tickets to the north. In only a few days, twelve of Seattle's policemen had resigned. Clerks were walking off their jobs. Barbers were dropping their straight razors, leaving men half-shaved. Doctors deserted their patients. The streetcars hadn't run since the gold ship had docked. Seattle's newspaper, the Post-Intelligencer, had declared, Prosperity is here. So far as Seattle is concerned, the Depression is at an end.